Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, where is Hello, folks. How are you? Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you're doing all right out there, wherever you are. I have a great episode for you today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Follow it on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. My guest today is Nicole Flattery author of a new novel called Nothing Special. I do think that Warhol predicted that kind of world, almost like maybe not his like the version I'm writing about here, that 60s version, which was still, you know, a little bit dark and certainly had like an interest in in, in real life and, and like stakes in real life, but like the 80s version, which was like selling, 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 like, you know, painting whatever, appearing wherever, like, you know, just almost like a, like a corpse just showing up at these things. I feel like he, that version of him is like how I feel about the culture now, not, almost not the version I, I, I wrote about, you know. Okay, that was Nicole Flattery. Her new novel, her debut novel is called Nothing Special, available now in North America from Bloomsbury. Nothing Special is a coming-of-age novel about a teenage girl working at Andy Warhol's factory in 1960s New York City. Her name is May, she is 17, she comes from a bit of a rough background, and she drops out of high school and gets a job as a typist for the artist Andy Warhol. And what she is doing for Warhol is transcribing conversations and experiences that he put on tape, featuring many of his famous and alluring and often drug-addled friends. And this is a real thing, this novel. And the typists who did all of this transcribing, two of the four of them are sort of lost to history. So Nicole Flattery in this novel is imagining who these women might be 
and bringing us into their world and showing us what it might have been like to exist in that place at that time inside of the Warhol factory scene, but also outside of it at the same time. This is also a novel that is very much about female friendship. May befriends a young woman named Shelley, who is also a typist and is also assigned to work on this transcription project. And this novel tracks their relationship and their respective responses to the situation that they are in. This is a novel about art and voyeurism. It's about identity and creation, female independence in mid-century America. It is a very smart and unexpected coming-of-age story, and I really enjoyed meeting Nicole Flattery and talking with her. That conversation is coming up momentarily. So a quick reminder, before we get started, I do a weekly email newsletter. It is free. If you would like to subscribe and hear from me once a week in your inbox, you can do so at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. The newsletter is simple. I will let you know about the latest episodes of the show. I will also share links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you want to sign up for the newsletter, please do so. Likewise, if you would like to support this podcast and help keep it going, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. This show is listener supported. So if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, I hope you will consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay. So my guest once again is Nicole Flattery. Her new novel is called Nothing special. It is her debut available now on Bloomsbury in the United States. Nicole Flattery's other book is a story collection entitled Show Them a Good Time, which uh, made a lot of noise upon publication a few years ago. Nicole Flattery is the winner of a Post-Irish Book Award, the Kate O'Brien Prize, the London Magazine Prize for Debut Fiction, and the White Review Short Story Prize. Her work has appeared in a variety of publications, including The Stinging Fly, The Guardian, The White Review, and The London Review of Books. She is Irish and lives in Dublin, and I had such a nice time talking with her, and I'm excited to share the conversation with all of you guys right now. Here she is, folks. This is Nicole Flattery, and her debut novel, One More Time, is called Nothing Special. Um, years ago, I, I kind of st- I read about, um, you know, a, a novel in Olivia Lang's A Lonely City. I think that is the first place I, I read about it because I remember making like a little, I was in a hotel and I made a little note to myself about it. I was. You, this is the Andy Warhol novel called. A, yeah, yeah. A, a novel. Yeah. And I was interested in. I was interested in the idea of, you know, working on something and like significantly contributing to something and then that not having your name on it um sadly and i was interested in that idea far more than i was initially interested in warhol that kind of research and things came later but yeah it's i guess because you know i'm a writer and that's what i do and even if i you know write the worst book in the world (laughs) i can still you know i get satisfaction from calling it my own or whatever 
So the idea of not being able to do that struck me as like particularly sad and also particularly modern as you know kind of like right now we see a lot of people's work being taken away from them like uh, like you know being taken off streamers or you know people not recognizing films they've made or or whatever that kind of thing so as creative work be kind of becomes more you know devalued i think this is an idea that's still worth exploring you know yeah well and it's interesting it made me think about working on a book i guess ghostwriters do this obviously mm. yeah yeah but they know what they're getting into mm -hmm. you yeah. know they they're paid for their labor and they know they're mm. not going to be and i mean sometimes their name is sort of below the title you know mm. somewhere but I think it's not that common for no. somebody to work on a work on a like a work of literature mm. and to be completely removed yeah. from authorship. But when it comes to visual art in the world of visual art, you hear about this thing all the time, like people yeah. laboring to create these things that like Jeff mm. Koons then like puts mm. his name on. And Damien like, Hurst. Thing. Yeah, they, they, they do this. They just have like, and I guess like James Patterson does this, right? There are certain authors I think who do this. They hire people essentially to just write their books and then they just put their name on it. Is that right? I don't know. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder, you know, I was interested in what it was like to be inside that, you know, to have done the work and to kind of then you know the the product emerges that the product or the creative output emerges out into the world and like it has nothing to do with you I, I thought it would be such kind of a lonely feeling and then you know a lot of my work is kind of like about the idea of like knowing what goes on behind the scenes of like celebrity or a certain um thing that you might appear might appear glamorous so yeah i i that's where the initial idea came from so how interested because i'm inter it's it's fascinating to me to think about the fact that you dove into this, like the world of Andy Warhol, the factory, mm -hmm. and it's obviously like world historic from an art history perspective. Mm -hmm. It's definitely interesting and has been chronicled a lot through the years. But I'm wondering if it could have been almost anyone or did it have mm -hmm. to be Warhol? Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like if the in, if the idea at the heart of this book has to do with this issue of authorship and sort of mm -hmm. being inside, like how, how big of a fan of Warhol are you and how interesting to you in a genuine way is that world or did it become so as you kind of got to work on this? It's interesting because I, like I've done, the book has been out in the UK since March, so the UK and Ireland. I've done a couple of readings and things and like people have come up to me and been like, I was such a huge fan of Warhol as a teenager. And, you know, I didn't feel that way. Although like, I'm quite like familiar with his work. I was familiar with his work before I began this, you know, I, I'd seen quite a few of the films and things. And, and you know, my kind of entry point was in that, that scene where the the kind of factory, Viva, I think, appears in Midnight Cowboy, that, that, that film. And I remember watching that in college and being like, oh, I've seen Chelsea Girls. I really enjoy the films. So I, I, that was an entry point to me. I wasn't like, you know, a devotee. And like a lot of the material I read, like the Edie and American Girl, which I know many people are a huge fan of that book. That was new to me. And now I'm a huge fan of that book. And yeah, a lot of the biographies and things I, I had not encountered before. But um, yeah, I it was one of those subjects that got more interesting as I kind of work, worked on it. I didn't get bored. <laughs> I could have kept yeah. doing it. I could have kept researching forever and then never written the book. <laughs> right. Just always. It's, it's very, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, it's very alluring, that process mm. of just eternal research. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it made me, I think what this book does to anybody who's reading mm. it is it causes them to evaluate or reevaluate how they feel about Warhol. Mm. 
Mm. Not that he's even that central to the book. He's sort of like this ghostly peripheral figure, Mm -hmm. which I like as a choice. You know, the book is really about these young girls Mm -hmm. who work in his service, essentially, Mm -hmm. and who are part of this scene and who are erased or anonymous in Mm -hmm. terms of their contributions to his art and to the work that he, you know, this novel in particular. And I got to say, like when I was thinking about it, I was like, yeah, I'm like generally, I guess I, in a general sense, I find his work interesting. I think where it it interests me the most is how predictive it was and Mm. how like tuned into the culture and to human nature it was. I mean, you really can look back on it and see Mm. how it predicted the world that we live in. The problem Mm. I have with it is that I don't really know if it predicted good things. Yeah. I don't know if it was like, was it a, I don't know if it was a critique. I don't know if Andy Warhol was critiquing Mm -hmm. in any kind of serious way, these things like this, we're all going to be famous for 15 minutes in Mm. the future. Yeah. Or do you think he he delighted in it? uh, I kind of think he delighted in it. And I don't know if I do. And then like, you know, painting Mm. like commercial products and logos and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess that was somehow tongue in cheek. Yeah, I hope I hope it was. <laughs> the thing you know? is, like, I've been asked to write a couple of. I wrote a piece for the Guardian or the Observer, one of them, about you know, you know, did Warhol predict the time we live in now, and you know, influencers and everything, and to a certain degree. But the difference between influencers now and influence, like his kind of factory people, is that like they weren't selling you anything other than themselves. They were just selling, like Edie was just selling herself, the idea of herself. You know, um, whereas influencers are now are, are selling you a lot of stuff like, you know, famous associated with like selling, selling, selling. And, and you know, in in the way it was back then, um, I feel like it's it's almost it's almost a little bit like naive, you know, like Edie and Onadine, who's like mentioned in the book, they had very turbulent, like personal lives. You know, there was like drug addicts and had like huge, like personal problems in their their own lives, whereas now like the kind of fame we encounter is like very like sanded down very pleasant very like presentable like it's all so like fame is so controlled now whereas I feel like back then there was there was a a total it was a chaos almost which is which is different it's really gone through a a, like the modern celebrity has gone like through a huge like transformation you know I find it sad I find like the whole culture of everybody vying for everybody else's attention and like talking into these like the the talking into the phone video Mm does something oh yeah me. the phone facing like just like hey how are you everybody like and everyone's doing this yeah, and i yeah. think like this it makes me sad that's mm-hmm. how i feel it makes me sad mm-hmm. it makes me unnerved i'm just like because i can't you know i just don't f- like something in me like the alarm bell goes off and then mm-hmm. when i think about what warhol was up to and like Edie Sedgwick, and it feels like quaint almost yeah in, it does it, does, know, it feels almost innocent you know yeah. even though their their lives are like I said, we're like extremely tumultuous. Like I feel, but yeah, I, I don't think that they recognize themselves as like sellable products in the way that we're we're doing now. You know, we're evaluating ourselves and being like, can I go go online and like you know do that thing where I can, I can sell myself or front facing camera and be associated with this product, whatever. And I do think it's leading to like a pretty boring culture where everyone has to be like extremely presentable all the time or something like you know advertising yourself in a, a way that's that I don't understand you know it's exhausting mm-hmm. it's exhausting yeah who wants to live in that world and, and you know what a lot of people yeah. <laughs> you know a lot of people take to it like ducks to water and it mm-hmm. makes me feel 
like I am an extraterrestrial. Like I look around, <laughs> I'm just like, this can't be right. And uh, it, apparently it is. And I'm the weirdo. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> anyway, so. Good to be a weirdo. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. I'll take weirdo. I'm happy to be a weirdo if that's going to be the reality we have yeah. to live in. But you are doing in this book something that I think is really cool. Mm. It's a cool thing for fiction writers to do. And it's a proper thing, I think, for fiction writers to do, which is to imagine the lives of two, I guess, two of the four women mm -hmm. who created this novel mm -hmm. for Warhol by transcribing like an, an incredible amount of mm -hmm. audio tape, right? That's what mm -hmm. they were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I want to say two of the women who worked on it aren't, are kind of lost to history. We, we don't even mm -hmm. know who they are. Yeah. But you have done the imaginative work mm -hmm. of trying to create and flesh out three-dimensional mm. human beings who worked on this through the characters of May, who is the protagonist of the novel, and her friend Shelley. Mm -hmm. And I love that. It's like it's mm -hmm. like a it's like a reclamation project, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I did think I did think of it in that way, and, and in that way, you know, it took me a little while to kind of find the voice for this and, and, and to figure out exactly what I wanted to do and things. But I, once I did, like once I had an understanding that I wanted it to be about me and Shelly, these two girls in particular, um, then I, I knew that I, I knew how to do it almost when I had decided that Warhol would be like more of a, a background figure. But yeah, I, I, he's, he's in there and a lot of his ideas are in there, but I didn't want him to overpower the narrative. The thing I think I keep comparing it to is uh, Jaws. Um, you know, don't like don't show the shark because if you show the shark, <laughs> like it will ruin the rest of the movie. It's so much more kind of tense and things if he's not if he's not there. You know, um, yeah. In respects. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it makes the book more propulsive in mm -hmm. some way. Mm -hmm. You're almost waiting for it, but you're not like mm -hmm. satisfying that itch. I mean, yeah. in bits and pieces. I want to say his name only appears twice in the book. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, his nickname, was his nickname really Drella? Yeah. Like, that's what people... A combination of Cinderella and Dracula. Okay. <laughs> Term of endearment, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the other thing I think that that choice, mm -hmm. obviously it foregrounds these women and it makes the novel about them mm -hmm. and their, like, emotional lives and mm -hmm. their interests and their narratives mm -hmm. but it also i think in a way like causes the reader to really evaluate warhol mm. <laughs> you know and i think like one of the things i read when i was prepping was that you're interested in how power works mm -hmm. yeah and you know warhol's you know portrayed especially in the popular culture and like movies about him like you mm. know the movie the doors or yeah uh, the Basquiat movie is this kind of like soft-spoken, mm. feeble, kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, mm. what's the word, gentle, yeah. you know. But what it made me think about when I was writing or when I was reading your novel uh, is it made me think of The Godfather of mm. all things. Yeah, yeah. And the performance by Marlon Brando where he, he's the most powerful mobster mm. around and he speaks in this very soft yeah. whisper. And I think like, one of the insights of that movie and one of the reasons it's successful is because it it sort of underscores how when you're really powerful, you don't have to raise your voice. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's yeah, yeah. leaning in. And so that's kind of how, maybe that's how Warhol was, right? Yeah, yeah. and I, it was interesting because like, I did not want to write a book where he was like a monster. 
I wanted to write a book that kind of, I read so many different things. You know, I read a lot of biographies of him that were praising. I spoke to different people that were, you know, friends of his. And you get different accounts, and that's the interesting thing, you know. Like, if you speak to anyone in anyone's life, you're going to get different different accounts of, of who they were, you know. Uh, that's, that's what's so interesting about reading biographies, I, I think, because if you read a couple of them, you realize, you know, this person was a different person to every single every single one of these people, you know. So like to, to to write a portrayal where he was like straightforwardly a monster would have been would have been wrong. But what I was interested in exploring was like I said there about the you said about the power was, you know, how everyone kind of reacted to him. And I, I found that the most interesting thing. I think there's a line where like, you know, everyone stood up and seemed more alive when they were kind of talking to him. Like even when he's not there, he's still kind of directing everything and he's still there when they perform they still want his attention and I I studied uh, theater in college and I understand that like I understand like being in a, a group of people and you know trying to act natural and thing but you still want the attention of one particular person whether it is like your your lecture and things and I I think that is uh yeah I think that's like extremely extremely interesting and I, I wrote a, a story collection previous to this and I I feel like I, that's what I sort of wrote about as well like how power kind of operates in the, in the world and I think it's something I'm always going to write about. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns Depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. There's a line in the book Mm -hmm. where I believe Shelley says, the world can turn you into a real monster. You have Mm -hmm. to turn into a monster to get what you want. And this echoes a thought that I've had repeatedly throughout my adult life (laughs) as I have been trying to get what I want Mm -hmm. and as I have been trying to like navigate Mm. the quote unquote adult professional world. Yeah. And I don't think it comes easily to a lot of artists, Mm. (laughs) but for somebody like Warhol who seemed so shy and Mm -hmm. meek, uh, you know, he kind of put on that guise Mm. anyway, yet he was able to get what he wanted Mm. and I'm it's always fat- extraordinary his like that is something I do find kind of like when you read about his like ascent you know from where he came from like you know he, he was from Pittsburgh and you know he didn't have like wealthy parents or to rise to that kind of level like now like it would be almost impossible and he still somehow did it and held that power for for however long for decades I did find that fascinating you know 
Well, yeah, I was going to ask you, that's the question I had for you, because I don't know this history of his mm-hmm. life, you know, but how did he ascend? How could somebody, like, was, I, I guess the, the the bigger question is, like, was this sort of shy, retiring, whispery talking, mm-hmm. Andy Warhol, was that kind of a performance? And was mm-hmm. he maybe more assertive privately? And did he, mm-hmm. he obviously had to be strategic and he had to be. Mm. He was strategic, definitely. Like, and I feel like that was like, I think one of his gifts, like, and I really do, you know, I think this is like underestimated across the board, but like, he could really spot talent or like star power in other people. And like, I think he saw it, you know, in Edie, who was like electrifying in front of the camera. And then, you know, Anadine, for example, or like Candy Darling, he did find all these people. and, and, And I think that was just like something he was, he was very, very good at. And I feel like I, I feel like people don't think that, think of that as like a talent, but it is a talent. But I think that he, from what I, I've read, you know, like a, a relationship with him or a friendship could be very kind of back and forth. And, you know, he had his favorites and then the favorites were out and the new favorite was in. And like, he was very attracted to because he grew up without money and believing himself to like be ugly, he was very attracted to like beauty and, and wealth. That's where he kind of Edie was, you know, the 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 his perfect foil in some ways. So yeah, I, it's impossible to know if like he, you know, if he was cruel or well, he was cruel. But yeah, sorry, I'm forgetting the question. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, it's a, all of it speaks to the question, yeah. which is how he did this and whether or mm. not he, like this idea of whether or not you have to be a monster to get what mm. you want from the world, mm-hmm. and I think especially in the arts, like the level of selfishness. Mm-hmm. this sort of ruthless mm-hmm. approach to one's time. You know, you have to sort of like elbow away every distraction and all the different people who might need your attention to at least some degree in order to get the work done. And it's then... Because it's a rise, this question is coming up again and again. I know there was a book out this year called Monsters by Claire Dedera. I talked about... to her. I talked oh, to her on yeah, the yeah. show. Yeah. And so she probably had some great answers. And then there's another book um, called Art Monsters and Things. So yeah, like the like doesn't isn't that what they like women aren't monstrous enough? You know that's from the the Jenny Awful book that you have to be an art monster. You know you have to be incredibly selfish and and, and things like that. But I'm like extremely, you know, like wary of ambition. Like I don't. Me too. <laughs> I think and I think as we get, as we kind of see the how things have progressed in the world, I think everyone's like you know, wary of ambition in, in some ways. This is where it's gotten us to, you know, all this accumulation. But I feel, you know, and I'm wary of ambition in myself, you know, like you kind of, I really wanted to, to, to write a, a novel where the main character is sort of um, surprised by what they're capable of. And I, I think there's like a couple of scenes where May is, she is genuinely, like didn't think she was able to do the the kind of one or two bad things she she does. Um, and I, I think that's really, uh, I think that can happen to you throughout your life as you as you try and as you try and get what you want or you get closer to to what you want all the time you can consistently surprise yourself or even yeah let yourself down a a little i think there's a social component too yeah you know where i feel like if you're looking out at the culture and you're seeing this sort of behavior reflected back at you Mm -hmm. or if you're in a more closed circuit you know with Mm -hmm. other people who are behaving in this way yeah like a certain line of work or office culture or whatever it is, then it can, can, it can make it seem like it's okay. Like this is just mm-hmm. what people do. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things about ambition and about like the climb that freaks me out so much mm-hmm. is how it can reduce human relationships to transactions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
like everything's transactional, like mm-hmm. underneath. And like, you start to wonder like how much of any exchange you have with a human being is even remotely authentic or yeah. rooted in like any kind of warmth. It's just people mm-hmm. trying to get what they want. And if they have to be like nice to you and put on a show to get there, the, they will, and maybe mm. you will too, you know, or I will too. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that's where it starts to get weird to me is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that can't be the answer. Like that can't be why we're on this planet. You know? No. And I think that that is like the, a worrying thing, you know, about sort of influencer culture as well. Like, you know, if you start doing that, you're treating yourself as like a separate entity. Like there's almost two selves, you know, the, the managed outside self and the kind of interior self, you know, which is more uncertain or, as confident or, or whatever and the, the two kind of things are like can't be reconciled so you, you must feel like a huge amount of like disassociation from yourself and and I even feel like that's kind of like the friendships I wanted to portray in the book is that, that she has like father figure character Mikey and you know I he love has... Mikey I, I love Mikey by the way <laughs> I love Mikey too <laughs> <laughs> well but no and it, let me just say I got to interject because it's that's germane to what we're talking yeah. about is that Mikey at some point says something, and I'm paraphrasing, or, or, or maybe it's May thinking about Mikey, about how he's like, in the eyes of the culture, kind of a loser. You yeah. know, this is not a guy who succeeded in any kind of conventional way. And then the last line is like, he was the smartest guy I knew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something like that. And I was like, yeah. I mean, you know, like there's this issue of resistance to cultural values. Mm-hmm. And I think I just have an abiding sense that somebody who is operating in resistance to the tide, whatever it ends up costing them is heroic to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and, and Mike, usually right. You know, yeah. history usually proves them right. Yeah. Um, and Mikey is emblematic of that. So anyway. <laughs> but I did, I wanted to write Mikey because he is like an sort of uncomplicatedly, like certainly more good than May because she's young and doesn't really know what she's doing. And he's an uncomplicated, good character in some ways. And I think, you know, he's almost like a, well, the novel is full of doubles. But he's almost Warhol's double because he is interested in art and he shows like May these kind of things and things, but he doesn't have the power uh, Warhol has. Like he doesn't have the friends, he doesn't have the parties. Um, and I think at one point she's talking about typing up the novel and he's like, you know, you're, she, he's like, it's not writing, it's eavesdropping. Like you, you're record, like he's recording his friends and for like, for what purpose is he recording these kind of people for? Um, and yeah, yeah, I just kind of wanted to, to have him as like an outsider view of like, you know, like th- th- what are these friendships and are they friendships if you're like willing to kind of use your friends to further your own name? Because there is, that is the thing, like A is like a, a, a novel is an extremely murky book. And like there's like sections of it where like people are like very high and like Onadine, they're even, you know, asks for the tape recorder to be turned off at like one point. And like, I and think can, like you, that, can you for listeners, can you explain who Onadine like, oh yes, yeah. he was, was like a, he was one of uh, Warhol's set in the sixties, and he was called the Pope. He's in Chelsea Girls, and he was like a big talker and things. And yeah, they, I, I, like Onadine was like a good friend of his. Like this, this was an interesting time because I think these people were really his friends. You know, like they weren't like people he was photographed beside at parties. You know, there wasn't any furthering of, you know, I need to be seen with this person. I think this person was like a genuine, genuine friend. Like, and there is this anecdote where. Onadine, he meets Onadine later at a funeral and Onadine's like quit drugs, whatever. And he's like, he just, he says, some, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like he seems so average, you know, without, without drugs, you know, he seems so, so normal. So it's like, you know, just like an ordinary guy, you know, that, that we wasn't on speed. 
but like I, yeah so there there is this part where like you know they're asking for the tape recorder to be touched tape recording to be turned off like Edie wasn't well he wasn't well and like they were doing all kinds of things and like you know that's like a very like the idea of that is like very interesting to me like I like that's almost like a, a precursor to to reality tv like you know when you profit profiting off someone's misery and like watching them and enjoying their kind of torment and like pain and you know I, like feeling like feeling through what they're feeling it's 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 incredibly dark but it, like i really do think he did it he did it first you know yeah well and there's something i think there's something authentic about it and mm-hmm. there is something like interesting about it mm-hmm. and as you were saying this about Anadine mm-hmm. like getting sober and mm-hmm. warhol finding him boring mm-hmm. But I think of like musicians, <laughs> you think of like your favorite rock band and like the best shit they ever did was when they were so fucked up. Yeah. And then they get sober, they get sober and you're sort of like, eh, it's not as interesting. I liked you better yeah. when you were miserable, which is a horrible thing to say to somebody who's like health yeah. is, and life is hanging in yeah. the balance. But right, you know? Yeah. It's hard, it's a hard to know that as an artist as well, like a, as a writer or like someone who does creative work or whatever, you're not exactly sure how exactly like how much you should like put yourself through the ringer you know like should you like suffer and like put yourself through kind of a lot so you you feel like your art will be good I I remember years ago I was trying to finish a a story and um, a friend of mine was like you need to get like a bad job and like a bad bad relationship and she was like (laughs) it's your funniest your funniest and your best when you're miserable (laughs) and I was like oh no but well, it's see, true. This, it can be very yeah. true. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it, it is interesting. This idea yeah. of people being at their most interesting or their most creative, like like vitally creative mm. when they are, for example, not sober mm. or when they are in some sort of state of unhappiness. Or yeah. It's interesting like to think of somebody like, wow, they're, they're actually their most authentic selves when they're on speed in a certain sense mm. because maybe some of the inhibitions are down yeah you know, you know maybe there's something like so fascinating and real about this person when some switch is turned off in their brain neurochemically you know and then when yeah. that switch is flipped back on it's like oh something's lost like yeah that might be true and yet it's a way better option for that person in the long-term sense so yeah. this stuff is complicated it's fascinating to me to think of like wow you might do your best work as a writer of fiction when you're in a mm. shitty relationship. <laughs> maybe the humor, maybe the humor. Yeah, maybe the humor is there. So as long as you can stand it, I guess, that might right? be a, as something as you can to seek it out. out. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I want to ask you about this idea of being in a scene because that's very much what this book is about. May and Shelley and all the girls, in yeah. particular the girls, you know, I think are the focus of your novel who work in Andy, Warhol, in Andy Warhol's orbit at this Midtown, the Midtown location of the factory. I didn't realize this because I'm not as, you know, I'm not as uh, read up on the history of Andy Warhol as you are, but I, I didn't realize that the factory actually moved. Yeah, it, it moved a, like three times, I think. Yeah, so, but oh. the part of your, you know, the part of the factory's history mm-hmm. that your book focuses on, I think it was on 47th Street. Yeah, yeah, 47th Street. So it was at its Midtown location. And I think it was really, you know, this time period that you're talking about was really when Warhol was a ascendant, mm, right? His star yeah. was rising. Things were maybe at their coolest. It kind mm. of tracks. It's, when... it's definitely the coolest, you know, yeah. like before it became, you know, a business, like before it became like 
a money-making enterprise when it was still like a sort of you know cool place to like hang out like that that was like that is the thing that people are like oh did you love this time or did you like love the 1960s and I, I like a lot of like 1960s films and things but I don't like I don't worship the time but like when I was reading about this I was extremely jealous of like the amount of time like they all got to hang out with their friends and like pay very little rent and like hang around um and all the creativity that kind of arose from that uh which I feel like we don't we just don't get it anymore, you know. That's right. That's mm. right. I do love the '60s. Yeah, uh, worship yeah. might worship might be too strong a word, but I think it's a very <laughs> like the yeah. cultural history of the 1960s will mm. never not be fascinating to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And what I want to ask you about because you're sort of you know the book sort of tracks mm -hmm. the Warhol scene in its heyday, mm. but also I think as it maybe tips and then starts to like slide yeah. <laughs> into whatever it became, where it was more mm -hmm. of a business, as you say. And it's interesting to me, because whenever you're, like whenever I was kind of growing up and seeing a band or something, there was always mm -hmm. some asshole who was like, it was way better like 20 mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah. You should have you been there back when, you know, yeah. I, remember, I remember seeing them in like a hallway when there was mm -hmm. like five people there, it was way better. You know, I'm never, <laughs> the, the point is that I'm never there when it's actually good. Always <laughs> <laughs> miss I always yeah. miss out. And I think that it's interesting to wonder about when a quote unquote scene is at its best and do the people who are involved in it even know? Are these things only visible with the benefit of hindsight? Mm. Maybe they did know as they were in it that there was something really cool going on. But do you ever know that it's gonna be something that like art history records and that is remembered all these years later and that Nicole Flattery is gonna be writing a novel about? <laughs> you know sure what I'm saying? That's what they wanted to know. Yeah. <laughs> right. you know, I feel it's yeah, very interesting. And like like a scene is so attractive. Like I feel like that is like when May goes in and it's obviously like a replacement for her family, like which is like and lots of you know, there were a lot of runaways there and things, like people that were like looking for a new kind of like family and things and I think you can you can find that and, I, and people were going to New York you know looking for that like someone like Shelley is kind of like of that of that time you know where she she came she was obviously you know unhappy at home and you know small town life and this idea of like celebrity like people like Edie being in magazines and you can open the magazines and like there's this whole different life so you would go you go to New York and you find these people and, and your your friends suddenly became way more important than your family um that was that was all new you know as kind of like individualization arose like in the in the 19 um, in the 1960s but like i feel yeah i feel like i don't know I, i've never I, I don't know if i've ever been part of a scene but at the same time i think like right now in like in culture now i feel like that scene and everything becomes much it becomes corrupted much quicker like things are swallowed much quicker now you know so you might see like you know a, a, a cool musician or their their first song is cool and then you know like a week later they're on the like you know they're on an ad you know because like there's people to absorb this kind of coolness like so much quicker and I, I don't think that things get to like flourish in the way they did in the early days of the of the factory or or people get to arise like naturally in like the way Warhol did it I think they're co-opted monetized quick, totally monetized just so right. quick now you know well and uh, I think I think too that there's it's it's a two-way street so yeah. there's like the people who wish to monetize it so that mm. they can share in the profit somehow, but there's also the need to monetize it because rents are so fucking high. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You so know, you don't these, get to enjoy. 
your time, you know, with right. your friends or whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, you can't flourish and just kind of have the thing be out in left field unless you're living someplace where there's a lot of like interesting, creative young people all living Mm. somewhere where you can get by working, you know, 20 hours a week or whatever it was and still pay your rent. And like, (laughs) so it's tough, you know, and I feel like too, like maybe the reason I never wound up in a scene is because I'm so kind of a homebody i mean unless the scene comes to my garage like this is your you're in my scene this is my scene right here. i don't think i could be in a scene or like i don't know maybe i am in a but like i'm just so naturally suspicious <laughs> i feel right. like i would be i'm not i'm not a, i'm not a joiner um me so, neither yeah so if the scene would have to really have to really bag me <laughs> okay. to join can we go off on a sidebar this idea yeah. of not being a joiner because yeah. i have this feeling i have this thought or this feeling often and I don't voice it publicly because I'm afraid mm. everyone's going to come down on me or I'm afraid I have some sort of blind spot. So feel free to correct me if I'm wrongheaded about this. But like whenever I see people identifying publicly and mm. sort of like ch- in a chest thumping way, like mm. I'm an American, mm. <laughs> I'm Irish, I'm this, I do I'm that. say I'm always like that though. <laughs> I know, I know, you know, I, people do. But I'm just like, you know what? Yeah. This isn't good. For us, the larger human project, mm-hmm. when we all start to break, because as soon as somebody says, I'm Irish, and if you're not Irish, then it's like, mm-hmm. well, I guess I'm excluded. And it kind of, <laughs> it we're in a weird subconscious, small but significant way, I think yeah. it sort of like divides us and it makes mm-hmm. people feel tribalized. And like, I think in my head, I'm like, we just need to stop this. Stop identifying with a religion, stop mm-hmm. identifying with a country, a race, a mm-hmm. ethnicity, whatever it is, stop it. We are earthlings. That's it. Full stop. But I also, I also feel like the, the tribes now, or the kind of this kind of celebrity thing that I'm, I'm sort of interested in. I, I feel like I explored a bit in this book. It's like people will be identifying certainly online, you know, as like I'm a Swifty, uh-huh. or I'm a, I'm a whatever. This kind of dedication, this loyalty to like one celebrity, which it's is weird. just like a, a, it's sort of arisen like in the last to an extreme degree in the last few years. I feel. Taylor Swift is maybe like the most Warholian celebrity you could possibly imagine because it is approaching like religious fervor, at least as I bear bear with it. It is. It is almost religious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, great pop star. I mean, it's not for me, but like, salute. Like, great songwriter. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm, I'm, I understand like the Mm -hmm. appeal, but the intensity of the fandom is Mm -hmm. separate from her. Yeah. And it's almost like, connected to i guess whatever she represents to people Mm. or some some way that people find their identity in her and maybe she's like a genius at cultivating that both through her Mm. work and through like however she presents herself publicly but there are going to be dissertations written about it you know it's really fascinating to me and it's it's beyond my scope of understanding i just kind of pass by on the internet and i'm like what the fuck is going on like but then it's almost you know it's a double-edged sword because you know these people if they do one thing wrong like i Taylor Swift obviously had that boyfriend and people were like disapproving. And then, you know, they were like, we'll stop following her. Like you, the, the exchange they feel with this, this person that's never met them or owes them nothing. This kind of like demand, you know, is, is very, um, the parasocial relationship. right? Oh, very strange. And getting stranger, I think. And like, is is very worthwhile for a novel because it's getting so, so bizarre. And I, I, you can see a little bit with, you know, Valerie Solanas and, and Warhol, you know, like I, 
obviously he and she's the valerie solanus is the woman who shot andy yeah. warhol yeah, yeah. and he, like I, I really do feel like she she whether he did or he didn't owe her anything she felt like he owed her like he owed her something and she wasn't well like you know she was like probably like she had certain problems and things but i i find that you know that that desire to get something from from a celebrity is is that in, that intense need has only gotten worse and worse and maybe even worse since since covid where everyone was kind of living online and kind of like indulging this in these kind of fantasies and things i i feel yeah i feel like it's kind of scary a little bit i have no like i gotta say i'm one of these people who have you been around a celebrity before ever been like in proximity to one i've met one or two yeah did it feel, how did it feel for you? I'm curious. I just think after a while, everyone, and like, that's the thing. Like, everyone is so into celebrity and stuff. And you're like, oh, if I met this celebrity, it probably wouldn't even be that fun, though. Like, it probably just be like, oh, I wish I was out with my friends. Like, I do probably think most of your friends are funnier than most celebrities. So <laughs> at least, like, more fun. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. I don't think, I think it's the pure novelty, you know. Um, but. I, it's not some I write about celebrity but I don't think I I don't have a devotion to any any celebrity and there's very few people I would be like overwhelmed to meet you know I'm trying to think of who it would be for me I live in Los Angeles so of course mm. I see celebrities yeah, you'd like see somewhat, somewhat frequently and all I ever yeah. say is that it's like like celebrity is like a third party entity it's separate mm -hmm. from the person who yeah. is famous yeah and so they come in, like you'll be at the grocery store and suddenly mm. you'll see some actor that you recognize. And it's honestly, for me anyway, it's anxiety inducing. Because mm. I'm like, oh shit, I recognize yeah. them. There's this, now there's like celebrity is in the room. Yeah. It's me, it's this person and, and, yeah. and their celebrity exists as this sort of like vapor or something mm. in the room. And then you can feel that they feel that you notice them and they sort of like it, but they also hate it and they just want to like get their fresh fruit or whatever, yeah. or their green juice. <laughs> And, they like to watch themselves. <laughs> yeah, and the great the great irony of the whole thing is that yeah. I don't I'm not an approacher. I would never go up to somebody. Yeah. Oh, like, I never this. this happened to me with Leonardo DiCaprio years oh, ago. That is a good one. At the grocery store. Mm. I'm wheeling my cart down the aisle and he's walking down the aisle towards me mm. with I think his dad. And I gave an Oscar-worthy performance of being a person who did not recognize Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm like yeah. looking to the side. I'm like, oh, do I? Because I almost like turned around. You know, like there's all these things that you kind of like reflexively do, and then I just sort of looked like really, you know, uh, concentratedly yeah. down and to my right, and just sort of like went past him. Yeah. But I hate that the fact. I hate the fact that it. Called, it had, why why should I feel a responsibility to do that? Yeah. You're the one who wanted to be famous. You know, like. It must be so weird to be these people. That's what I always find. Yeah. But I also think that like I'm not that interested in celebrity or whatever, but I am quite easily enthralled. Um, and if I feel like someone's like, like you know, I'm a very charismatic or like very funny or like I will be like, oh, like, you know, I'll think that person, like, in a minor celebrity, like a small town celebrity, minor celebrity kind of way, I'll be like, yes, like, they're they're exciting. I think I would have been interested in the factory because I would have been like, they're exciting. They're going out every night. They're doing this. They're, like, I think I would have found them. Um, I would have found that intoxicating, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, that's the wild, like, the pure wildness of the yeah. scene, especially for people of a certain age. Oh. 
if you're in your 20s and you're hanging around with people like Anadine who are like just, and mm. Edie Sedgwick, who mm. just, you know, is kind of supermodel beautiful and living like a rock star, mm -hmm. essentially, that's going to be intoxicating in more ways than one. I can see the allure, but. But I also feel like, they, like you know, they, they had no real sense of like, you know, there was a lot of tragedy in the in the factory, like a lot of suicides, overdoses and, and things like that. And these people didn't really have a sense of um, self-preservation. Like, you know, there was no, there was no ambition, you know, I, I like not, like I said, like, not in the way we're seeing it now where they're like, I'll get this brand deal and I'll get the next brand deal and, and things like that. The way that we're living was sort of like, honestly or honest to themselves. And if the, their desire for attention had no drive behind it, like no drive for money maybe, but like other than the attention itself, which is what I think makes it, makes it sort of different to now, you know? Yeah, it's like attention was the currency. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. funny, like, because I think that's problematic in terms mm. of, like, psychological well-being. Like, if that's what you're mm -hmm. after in a consistent way, you're probably not going to be well. Yeah. And yet, <laughs> the notion that somebody would only be interested in the attention without mm. any thought of how to monetize it mm. seems quaint. Doesn't it? Yeah. 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 So... Anyway, those were the good old days. <laughs> yeah. Su suicides, overdoses, and attention as currency. It was just really, a, those are the, the, the halcyon era of uh, the attention economy. But I want to talk to you about New York City as mm -hmm. an uh, Irish woman who yeah. is sort of writing out of her like physical environment. You know, mm -hmm. you're set this book in New York, which presents challenges. Mm. It would present challenges to me as a non-New Yorker and somebody who has never lived there, but maybe mm -hmm. a little bit more so for somebody who's writing from across the Atlantic. And yeah. I read that you, as as your inspiration, drew upon Stanley Kubrick's portrayal of New York in Eyes Wide Shut, mm -hmm. yeah. which when I read it, I was like, ah, like mm -hmm. not only did, did I see that in the novel, like mm -hmm. with the benefit of that knowledge, like thinking back on it, but I also thought that's a very shrewd choice. Yeah for somebody who's trying to render this from a distance. Mm. So like, what is it for people who might not mm. be tuned into what we're talking about? What is it about Eyes Wide Shut and its portrayal of New York that influenced you? Uh, well, I love Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, As do it's I. My, it's one of my favorite films. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually writing about a couple right now. Um, what, in a future book? In a new novel, yes, yes. Okay. Um, and it's, I'm like, I was making a big list, and I'm like, what are the the big couple things, you know, what are the, the films I need to rewatch and things? And it's just like Eyes Wide Shut is just like the one, isn't it? But the thing with the Stanley Kubrick was he was afraid of flying. So he built New York on like a, on a soundstage, on like a, a soundstage in London, I think. And it makes the film feel even stranger than it than it already is because everything's just like a little off. And you know, the, the size of the buildings and things are like when he's when Tom Cruise is walking through the streets, it's, things are just like a little wrong. And that's how I wanted New York to feel, because a large, the large amount of it is it is in May's memory rather than, you know, I'm not a huge writer of place. Um, I'm almost kind of talking about this, but even in my stories and stuff, I, I, I'm just not. I, I, I grew up in like a very, um, <laughs> I feel like I'm insulting my town when I say this, but I grew up in a very small town in like the middle of Ireland. And what's it called? Town, uh, Kinnegad. <laughs> Say that again. Kinnegad. Kinnegad. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's like Mullingar. It's a bigger town. But Kinnegad is a very small town, and it's only one street. 
and you've got like pubs and like shops and you know that there's not a huge amount on it and the midlands is like full of these towns this is like you know they're just towns you you drive through like people don't even recognize the names they're just like i'm driving through to get from dublin to the the west of ireland and they it doesn't even register so i feel like in when i was writing my story these are the these are the towns i was thinking of like i i, I wasn't like i'm not like i wasn't thinking of particular like like places and things because places never register i grow up grew up in a sort of nowhere place so place never really right. registered with me um although i'm, I'm trying to do something a, a little different now but i feel that's i wanted to write new york like may would see it as someone who grew up there and lived there for a long time not like someone who's like i walked down here and i went to this and i saw the the empire state building and then i saw this bridge and i like when i saw this building i just didn't think that would feel truthful to me um so I wanted it to be a sort of a, a, an odder version of of New York. But I write all my places odd. <laughs> all it's my all, stories are odd. But it's like the way that I would characterize it is that this book, you know, you're very good at interior space. Mm -hmm. You're more concerned with the interior yeah. space as exterior space. And so mm -hmm. the way that New, New York is experienced for the reader in this book is through the interior of May, mm -hmm. who as a local... And as a particular kind of person, perhaps, is not like clocking every single last no. thing. No, as no. you're talking, I'm thinking of my wife, <laughs> who has a gift for this. Like we yeah. can drive through a new part of town or some, mm -hmm. like we'll go someplace on vacation, someplace we've never been mm -hmm. before. We'll be in the rental car, we'll drive in, we'll find our Airbnb, whatever mm -hmm. it is. And then I'll be like, wow, where should we eat? And she'll just start listing off where all the restaurants are. She can That's clock. She can clock a place and remember what every retail, like no matter what, it just sticks in her head. And I can live in Los Angeles for 25 years. I don't know where anything is still. <laughs> I'm still not like tuned into my environment. I don't yeah. care where the Rite Aid is. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I'm not thinking about it uh, that way. Yeah. But I, I, don't, I don't think about place usually either. And I've lived in Dublin for years. I, I live here now. And I've lived here. I went to college here and everything. So like I feel, but I, yet I haven't written like a Dublin story. I haven't written like, and I, I I just think I'm so involved with my characters that I write character studies, and it's how they see the place they are, and it's all kind of funneled through their psychology. So I feel like my place is very just linked to character, which makes it different. Um, anyway, you know, otherwise. Yeah. I think mm. we're just lost in our own heads, maybe. That's what <laughs> not paying attention. <laughs> yeah, right. Very bad eyesight as well. So I'm actually probably not seeing the place. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that excuse. Maybe I should start using it. I just can't see. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so another thing that this book has a lot to do with, and I think speaks to contemporary times, you know, it's, it's, it's mm. useful, like it's a useful perspective, I think, uh, for readers to sort of assess the times that we live in, especially maybe female readers, mm -hmm. which has to do with the limits of the female experience, which mm -hmm. have changed for the better in many respects mm -hmm. since the time of, you know, the factory in the 60s mm -hmm. and the women who were working there, women like May and Shelley. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that's really great about this book as a character study is the ways that May and Shelley both understand and intuit the limits that the culture is placing upon mm -hmm. them mm -hmm. as women in this world and mm -hmm. what what's possible for them mm -hmm. and it's not only 
an issue of their own personal experience, but it, you mm. can also see it as they're maybe observing in passing Edie, mm. for example. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, mm. there's a lot of that to this book that was certainly mm. on your mind, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Like, and I was thinking about, you know, like the 60s was such kind of like presented to women as like, you know, you can, it was the beginning of like, you can be whatever you want, you know? And then, then there was like the secretary, the secretary of the world, like the typewriter was huge. Like this like typewriter as the idea of escape, you know? And I think even like the way Shelley and May relate to their typewriters, you know, they, they really, I think at one point May is like, it, like they were almost becoming part of the, the machine, you know? Um, and I think at the same time, you know, the, the, the experiences that are being presented to them, you know, the, the girls coming in to audition for the films and the girls, like the extremely glamorous, you know, beautiful women that are, are want to be in your Warhol set and things like that experience isn't accessible to them. Um, and I, I think that they're being confronted with that, like in, in, in many different ways and sort of the, the lie of, you know, of who they are, you know, they think like she, like May convinces herself she's like a writer, but she's just there typing, doing what she's told, and 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 things, and as are the other three girls, you know, like I think she's she makes kind of digs at this other kind of secretary in charge, Danita, who thinks she's more important than she is, you know, this sort of they were still there, you know, doing women's work, doing secretarial work basically, but the 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 place was just a bit more more glamorous, and yeah, I I, I think I was like. You know, in some ways, like I feel like I was exploring my own kind of experiences as well with like work and what I've experienced when I, in my own in my own life, you know, and the kind of limits of of, you know, what's available to you. And, and May comes from a family where she's, you know, she, she they're not very wealthy. They're not very well connected. They're not very, you know, she drops out of school and, and, and things like that. And, and she doesn't seem to understand like that she's writing these letters to these incredibly wealthy families and things like asking for money and yeah she she's 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 struggling to get into a world that she like she's she's trying to have access to you know um yeah we haven't even brought up may's mother which is <laughs> central to the book but may's mother is a a boozer and a waitress yeah. like a career waitress and mm. may sort of grew up in this diner where her mother works mm. getting free milkshakes and <laughs> kind of bearing witness to mm you know, just the whole scene, like not only like her mother's work life, but also the kinds of people who show up in this diner mm -hmm. repeatedly of whom, or of, yeah, of whom Mikey is one, right? Yeah. Mikey is one of the guys who is sort of a regular and that's how he came into their lives. But I think that, I think you said earlier, this is a book of twos. Yeah. There are a lot of pairs in this yeah. book. You know, there's May and Shelley, who I think are most central, but there's also May and her mother. There's also mm. May and Mikey. Like, there's lots yeah. of these two relationships. Mm. Mm -hmm. Was that something that you set out to do intentionally, or was it something that you sort of realized about your book after the fact? Well, the thing was, I've, I really wanted to show May at, like, different points in her life, you know, um, to show that she, like, left the factory, but it still had a kind of impact on her and things. And I knew that I, I wanted to kind of thread those and things through, and... Then her mother sort of became, as they do, a more central figure than I initially planned her to. You start writing someone, and, and then you're like, "Oh, this is this is good, actually. Like, I think this is what she would sound like. This is this is who she is." And I, I the same with Mikey. He became into it like a little bit more, and I didn't really want to funnel that funnel that down. But I guess her and Shelley's relationship, like friendship, is the is the main is the main friendship. 
and it's the main relationship in it but I, I wanted to her to have all these little, like little different relationships like you do in life you know um yeah yeah it's beautiful and there's like i love the the friendship between shelly and may mm. has this great kind of offbeat quality to it and it feels yeah. really lived in and their dialogue is excellent and the ways they sort of insult each other to their face the way yeah. that friends can the way that friends can you yeah. know it felt true to life to me because yeah. you'd be like oh wait are they in a fight and then like a second later they're like skipping down the street together or whatever it's like oh okay yeah this is how they're, very, they're really performing for each other i think uh shelly and may and I, I think that I, I think that there you have a like a real May has a real affection for Shadow, even though she's this sort of odd character and she doesn't fit anywhere. And I think that that, that friendship that arises is is, is very true, it's very true to her. Um, and I really wanted to write like a like even amongst all of the stuff that's happening, they have this real, they have this real friendship, you know. Well, I think there's a line in the book where May is sort of assessing her friendship with Shelley mm. and she says something to the effect of like, Shelley could actually see me mm, or mm. she saw the real me, right? Is mm. am I? Yeah, yeah, there's a line, there's a line that, um, I don't know what it is, um, but there's something like, she, she, she was never like looking kind of outside herself. Like she was always, she always like saw you, you know, rather than what your, some idea of herself, you know? I don't, Shelley's like, she wants to impress these people and she's almost got a desperation about it because, you know, she has no family there and everything, but also she is like kind of completely herself in other ways. So I found that interesting to write. Yeah, I like I, writing friendship anyway. Um, yeah. I, I write a lot of friendships. I think, so. I think it's, I mean, it's very fast. It's like the most, mm. maybe the most fundamental kind of human relationship. Mm. I mean, I guess family relationships are maybe the most fundamental, but there's something yeah. about friendship that, especially if you're dealing with characters of a certain age that gets a little bit more open and interesting mm. most of the time. And I think too, there's a difference between say a friendship and then a work friendship mm -hmm. and uh, like a family and what mm. they call a work family here in the United yeah. States. Work yeah. <laughs> I don't know if this is, is this a term too in Ireland where people, mm. I sort of bristle at that, but I think that being friends with people in a work context is weird mm. oftentimes. And this mm. idea of work being a family mm. is often bullshit. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. They're not, they're not, they're not your yeah. family. <laughs> they're, they're all... And I, I think that that's kind of positioned to you as like, you know, to keep you in the office longer hours and you should all socialize together. So you feel indebted to your company or your boss in a way that you absolutely should not. But I do find it, um, I do find something about like work friendships like kind of funny because if you think about them, you're thrown together in a way that with these people that you might normally never hang out with. And I, I think like a lot of tar terrible jobs I've had, like, you know, working in bars and different places and things. And like the only reason, like, you know, you see someone there and you're like, you're the reason I'm like, <laughs> I'm here, you know, you're my reason to get through the day because uh, you have just like a good, like a, a good, like, friendship with this person they get you and i really i really like writing those kind of surprising friendships because they yeah they they kind of it's not planned you know you're they, they catch you off guard and they could be any age or like come from anywhere and suddenly they're like your best pal you know well yeah it's like the person at work with whom you can actually be honest yeah. without <laughs> just fear of rolling your eyes in all the meetings yeah without <laughs> fear without fear of retribution yeah. that person it's funny like i think back to a job i had which was particularly stressful and kind of awful. And I'm still 
friends mm. with the one dude at work who I could just be like, this is a joke. <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <you laughs> know. But everybody else, you're sort of on guard. You don't know, yeah. you know, like exactly where you stand or what somebody might say to somebody else if you actually get truthful. And mm. man, that is not a situation I like to be in where you just no. can't be honest about how you're seeing things. You know, it's yeah. weird. It's a weird way to be. Mm-hmm. So before I let you go, I want to know, you mentioned that you grew up in a town with like one street. Mm. <laughs> any any traffic lights or no? <laughs> one set. One set. <laughs> in the middle of the town. Okay. Um, opposite the church. Yeah. So <laughs> do you come from bookish people? Like, or, did you grow up with yeah, readers? Yeah, my dad's a teacher or was a teacher before he retired. So oh, okay. Very bookish. And, a teacher yeah, of what? English. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that was it. uh, We all are big readers, actually, and like very fast readers, which is great uh, because then I'd be like, read this, and then I have someone to discuss it with. Uh, My sister is a very fast reader as well. You can speed read? Oh, just quick, just like very quick. Um, Because I, I, my my friends, like some of my friends from home and stuff, like they read, but like it'll take them like two or three weeks to read a novel. I'm like, I don't have time. I've already moved on from that novel. I don't want to talk about that anymore. So (laughs) my sister is very reliably good for someone to talk to with about these things. Okay, so answer me this. How Mm -hmm. how are you fast? Like, is it because you just sit down for like four hours at a stretch? Or is it because you actually are like, your eyes are moving more quickly? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, what is it? I I can just sit down and read for like like a good while. I think it's actually one of the... Like the few good, like good remaining skills that I still have, I have quite good concentration. I think so. I can still read for like a, a like long, uninterrupted stretches. Maybe um, that has something to do with growing up in a small town. Yeah, yeah. Because when you grow up in a small town, you're just bored. You you're really bored a lot of the time. You know, from which like, is good. It's good to be bored. Yeah, we don't have boredom anymore. That got like that is the one thing that not one thing, but one of the ideas. You know that Warhol had. You know the kind of boredom. Um, you know, he's got the film Empire where, you know, you watch the Empire State Building until the lights come on for hours and hours and hours. And I find all those ideas like fascinating, you know, I, I think boredom is like, I think it's like a key to being creative in some ways. I don't think like being stimulated all the time is like works for anyone, you know. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Pro boredom. <laughs> Pro boredom over here. <laughs> do you have a TV? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You do? I watch TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Did you have a, and you, I guess your dad was a, he was a teacher. So you're not, mm. I'm picturing you on some sort of farm, but you didn't live on a no, farm. No, no, no. I lived, I, no, I was like, no. And then I was like, no, actually I did live near, very near a farm. There was like a farm behind my house. Um, so yeah. Did you grow up with dogs? No, cats. Cats. Okay. Mm-hmm. I used to have a border collie. So anytime oh. I'm talking to somebody from the UK or Ireland, I'm just like imagining them. I have this like fantasy of one day living on like some sort of, farm with just lots of border collies <laughs> oh you could definitely yeah. do that here i know i love those dogs <laughs> it's like my favorite uh, animal but yeah uh and then you went to trinity that's where you and you said you studied theater theater and film theater and film but then pivoted to literature yes why um there was no real reason i didn't want to be an actor and i I started writing plays in third year of college and I really enjoyed writing plays and then but the thing about being a playwright is it's very hard to get like a play staged and you need like you know all lots of actors and director and money and the thing about like writing short stories which is what I started writing then uh, is like you don't need any of that Uh, you can do everything like that is the 
like if you're like a bit of a control freak you know you can like costume like music you're in charge of everything because <laughs> it's just I you stud i studied film too I had the yeah. same same exact trajectory. Yeah. I was like, I want to tell stories. I'll be, and I just knew film because I grew up in a screen culture. Yeah. Even back in you know my day, I think we were still like movies were and TV were predominant. And then you start yeah. to realize like, oh, you've got to collaborate and raise yeah. money and do all this stuff. And I was like, and it can be this. very slow. Whereas yeah. like if you have an idea, you can sit down and write it to its conclusion. Like in however, like writing can be very slow too, but you know not as slow as kind of relying on a lot of other people. So if you're a fast reader, are you a fast writer? No. <laughs> okay, good. I was going to be very, I mean, I was gonna be very angry with you. I was going to be angry with you if you were like, yes, I just, they shoot right out of me. I wrote this novel in two weeks. <laughs> God, no, no. I'm a very slow writer. I'm an incredible, I got a, this took me three or four years. So I am, I'm envious of fast writers. I wish I was faster. Um, what was the know. biggest challenge for you? Because I mean, like you said, you started in short stories and sort of made your name initially as a, as a writer of short stories. And I think mm -hmm. this is your first novel, right? So can you talk a little bit about the, the transition and like what the learning curve was like for you? Um, so yeah, I wrote a collection of stories that came out in 2019. And I think that what which the, is called show them a good time, show them a good time. Mm -hmm. And then I think the change for me was, I had to kind of learn I thought it would just be the same as writing stories, but it really wasn't. And I had to learn like voice, like there's stuff you can do with voice in like 10 pages that you can't do in a novel. Um, like you would stay with a voice for 10 pages, but you won't stay with it for 250 pages. So I kind of had to pare back and do things that are like plotty stuff that I didn't have to do before. It, it, that's what, like I'm a big rewriter and all that took like a lot of time. But it's good to learn, you know, I, I wanted to try something different and it's good to do something different. I knew I always wanted to write a novel. So, yeah. And it's more, I mean, it's theoretically more saleable, right? I mean, that's what, that's what yeah. the, that's what the general sense of it is over here. I don't know if it's any different in Ireland, if short fiction. We hasn't. actually really like short stories here. Now we like, you know, they don't make much money, but we have a lot of magazines and we have a, like a good story culture. Ireland's um, got a good literary culture in general. I mean, that's yeah. the way I conceive of it. I just talked to Declan Mead on this show. Did you? I did, yeah. Oh, he's a, my editor. I know. Oh, for this book? No, for the last one. Oh, we'll see. Yeah, I think he did actually bring you up in the conversation. <laughs> he was sing he was singing your praises. He was giving you oh, a plug. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm yeah. glad. <laughs> so I uh, I talked to him about The Stinging Fly and its success, and it just got written up in the New York Times, which I'm sure you saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's very exciting and interesting. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like someone like Declan has like been brilliant for like the short story culture in Ireland, you know, like and the Sting Fly, like they have three issues a year and the editor, Lisa McInerney, is uh, fantastic. And they've had like a series of great editors like Danny Denton and Sally Rooney and um, all of that is like, it's really been, yeah, I, I feel like I'm always reading brilliant stories in Ireland, and, and but I'm always, I'm always reading brilliant stories in the New York or whatever. I just feel like people don't go out and buy story collections like they go out and buy novels you know like people are always like what novel are you bringing on holidays and things people just don't read them in the same way I, I don't know why and you said earlier you're working on a new novel mm -hmm. yeah any hints as to what it's about <laughs> yeah uh it's about a couple oh that's right they're uh, uh it's set in a, like a hotel like in a spa um yeah in ireland this time in ireland so, yeah what part of ireland do any uh, actually, it's going to be in the Midlands. Um, so yeah, I'm going to. Which is where you're. Which is where you're from. Yeah, safe ground in this one. Okay. 
You should know. I mean, you know, yeah. as well as you can know a place, you should know that. Place. I'm always worried people are going to correct me about this novel. <laughs> the next one, I'll be like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have enjoyed meeting you. And it's I, lovely to meet you. Uh, enjoyed nothing special and Thank getting you. sort of a, what's the word? Like a sideways window into the world of Andy Warhol, you know, like a different perspective than maybe yeah. we've gotten before and mm -hmm. it's refreshing and it brings, I think it casts new light on that mm -hmm. whole scene, right? It's like yeah. sort of the point of the project. And you also are a great sentence writer, which I think has been noted in a lot of the reviews and interviews that I've read with you uh, preceding this conversation. There's a really unique music to your writing and the dialogue is great, the depictions of friendship, but I don't know. I, I'm really bad at talking about prose. <laughs> I yeah. can't stand it, you know, but it's like, but yet I'm, I feel the urge to, because it's so notable and it's part mm -hmm. of what makes this book so enjoyable and also kind of mysterious. Cause I'm like, how did she do this? But <laughs> one of the things that somebody wrote, which I, which made it make sense to me is that like, you know, there's a lot of surprises in your mm -hmm. sentences. They sort of come at you from odd angles, but the way that I always characterize it is that it's like just offbeat music. It's just mm. slightly offbeat and it does things that are unexpected and there's a consistency to it that makes it um, like integrated, you know, that's like as a, as a total piece of music. It's not like there's just like one strange line here or there. Like this whole thing is written like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know how you do that. If you can tell us how you do that, <laughs> I'd be all ears. I'm sure you have no idea. <laughs> no, I don't really. I do think a lot about, though, you know, sentences. And I'm a big fan of, um, probably to my editor's, like, annoyance, but I'm a big fan of the, the long paragraph, like the long, hefty paragraph. And it's it's got to look, it's got to look a certain way and it's got to feel a certain way. And that's just how I enjoy writing. And I'm also quite, like, I think I'm, you know, like a little bit evasive. I, I withhold certain things and things. Like I feel like that's a short story writer trait. So yeah, I, 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 if I tried to write any differently now, I, I think I would have trouble. <laughs> so yeah. this is just the way it is. It's the way it is. And you yeah. said you said earlier too that you're a big rewriter. So a lot yeah. of this stuff is is sort of hammered out in the yeah, revisions. Yeah, yeah. All right, Nicole. Well, I know you got to get somewhere, so I'm going to let you go. But I have uh, loved talking with you. Congrats again. Thank you. And best of luck on me. the as yet untitled <laughs> new novel about a couple in the Midlands. Oh, I have a title. Oh, what would yeah. you be willing to share? Yeah, it's called Something Unpleasant. Okay, so we have what? Show them what you've got. Show them, show them a good time. Oh, Nothing show them special. a good time. Nothing special. Something unpleasant. And something unpleasant. Yeah. I like these titles. <laughs> Thank there's, you. Yeah, there seems to be some sort of thematic unity. I got to figure out what it is, but yeah. All right. Well, listen. Thank you. Best of luck to you. Thanks so and, much. And uh, maybe we'll talk again down the road. Yeah. Thank you. All right, everybody. There we go. That was my conversation with Nicole Flattery. Her debut novel is called Nothing Special. Available now from Bloomsbury. You can follow Nicole on social media, so track her down there. Again, the book is called Nothing Special, out there now. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Support the show if you love the show over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. And if you want to get another people t-shirt, sweatshirt, a onesie for your newborn child, you can do that at otherppl.com. 
There are different colors, different cuts, men's, women's, whatever you need over at otherppl.com. Don't forget to subscribe to my free once a week email newsletter. You can do that at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. Please rate this podcast wherever you listen. If it's possible to write a review, write a quick review. It helps the show find new listeners. If you would like to email me, if you have feedback, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, a plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is out there right now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I will read it to you if you want. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So coming up on Friday, another flashback episode where I go back into the archives and share an outtake. Stay tuned for that. And then on Sunday, I will be in conversation with an author named Andrew Lipstein. He has a new novel out called The Vegan, which sort of blew my mind. So stay tuned.